Well, prophecy uh, is defined in the American Tract Society Bible Dictionary as the foretelling of future events by inspiration from God. It then says that this foretelling is not just pure guesswork and chance. A true prophecy, it says, can come only from God, and a true prophecy may be known by these marks. Being announced at a suitable time before the event it foretells, having a particular and exact agreement with that event, being such as no human foresight could produce, and being delivered by one claiming to be under the inspiration of the Almighty. Many of the prophecies of Scripture foretold events ages before they occurred, events of which there was then no apparent probability, and the occurrence of which depended on innumerable contingencies involving the history of things and the volitions of persons not then in existence. And yet, these predictions were fulfilled at the time and the place and in the manner prophesied. Now, the Bible is not the only place where we find prophecy and predictions, but biblical prophecy is unique. A biblical prophecy is awesome. Biblical prophecy is intense. Nowhere else do we find that every prophetic utterance is 100% fulfilled except here in the Bible. And that is insane, which means it's astonishingly impressive. And tonight we're going to look at an insane prophecy. And through that prophecy, we see God, who is astonishingly impressive. So turn with me, please, to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. That's going to be our focus passage. That's the prophecy we're going to look at, Jeremiah 29, 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. From this prophecy, let's focus on three of God's characteristics. We will see that God is promise-keeping. Second, God is all-powerful. And third, God is gracious. First, God is promise-keeping. Now, as most of you know, people, people struggle with God, and people do not believe God because they attribute promises to God which God has not made. And this is a vital point. If God does not keep his promises, he is not God. So, people the world over are saying things like, oh, there is no God, or God is not loving, or God is not worth following, because he has not done for them what they expected. But their expectation was wrong. God has not promised to heal every sick grandmother or mother. 
He has promised that the wages of sin is death. God has not promised that religion would not cause wars. He has promised you will hear of wars and rumors of war. Here in Jeremiah 29, God promises, and I'm going to read it from the NIV. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Now, the place referred to at the end of verse 10 is Israel, the promised land. God swore to give the Jews their own land. He promised Moses way back in Exodus chapter 6, verse 8. He said, I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. And God did bring Israel into that land. Judges 2.1, for example, reads, Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gigal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Yet, Jeremiah 29.10 reads, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. You see, the Jews are no longer in Israel. They were in Babylon. Did God break his covenant? No. The land still belonged to the Jews. In fact, today, the land still belongs to the Jews. But God also promised that the Jews would be taken from their promised land if they persisted in disobedience to him. Flip over to Jeremiah chapter 1. Keep your finger in Jeremiah 29.10, but flick over to the beginning of Jeremiah. Chapter 1, verse 16. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 16. And there, this is what God says. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. His judgment was he would exile the Jews from the land of Israel. Now turn to Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 19. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 19. And God has this recorded for us. And when the people ask, why has the Lord our God done all this to us? You will tell them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your own land, so now you will serve foreigners in a land not your own. And that land was Babylon. For centuries and centuries, God had warned Israel that this Babylonian invasion would come if they persisted in their disobedience. And in the years, even the days before Jerusalem was finally conquered, God continued to warn the Israelites. 
in Jeremiah 5, 15 through 17. God says, People of Israel, declares the Lord, I am bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. Uh, Their quivers are like an open grave. All of them are mighty warriors. They will devour your harvest and food, devour your sons and daughters. They will devour your flocks and herds, devour your vines and fig trees. With the sword, they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. Now, Jeremiah was prophesying during a time when Babylon had become a powerful empire. Furthermore, Babylon had come to Jerusalem and was attacking Jerusalem. But see, Jeremiah wasn't just looking at present circumstances and making an educated guess. He was speaking forth God's promise, a promise God first made 800 years prior through Moses. Have another quick look on your own at Jeremiah 5, 15 through 17, because that's important for what we're about to do. Now, with your finger still in Jeremiah 29, we're coming back there. Turn now to Deuteronomy chapter 28. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 28, near the end of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, beginning in verse 49 of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God is warning the Jews of coming curses if they persist in disobedience. And here in verses 49 to 52, God promises through Moses the invasion of the Babylonians. And how do we know it's Babylon? Well, as we read this together, note the similarity of language here in Deuteronomy 28 to what we just read in Jeremiah 5, 15 through 17. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 28, 49 through 52. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a a nation whose language you will not understand. A fierce-looking nation, without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you are destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine, or olive oil, nor any calves of your herd or lamps of your flocks until you are ruined. They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God is giving you. And God kept that promise. Now, finally, turn back to Jeremiah 29.10. And that was 800 years prior to this time in Jeremiah 29.10. But God is saying now, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. And God, as he always does, he kept that promise. Turn to 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. 
2 Chronicles 36. It's the last chapter in 2 Chronicles. Just a few books up from Jeremiah. You'll pass the Psalm. You go through Job, Nehemiah, then you come to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 36.22. We see here that God keeps his promise to the Jews. This obviously is after Jeremiah 29.10, although it's previous to it in its place in the Bible. But 2 Chronicles 36.22 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. Wow. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian king who conquered Jerusalem. His son, Belshazzar, ruled after him. One night, you may remember this story from the Bible, Belshazzar was giving a feast, and he decided to bring out the holy goblets that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Belshazzar's father had humbled himself before God and had become a Christian. Belshazzar refused to humble himself, and that night, God judged him. He gave Belshazzar a message, remember, by causing a human hand to appear and write on the wall of the palace. The message was interpreted by Daniel, who was a Jewish captive. He said the message was this, that the Babylonian kingdom and Belshazzar's life would end. And it happened that very night. The Persian and Mede Empire took over that very night under the rulership of Cyrus, king of Persia. And later, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus to make a proclamation to send the Jews back to their promised land. God kept his promises, and he still does. And in doing so, he proves our second point, that he is all-powerful. Here's a question for you. Why don't you keep every promise you make? Well, one reason is because something more powerful prevents you from doing so. Once I called Sharon and promised to be home at a certain time for dinner, and I left the church I was working at in plenty of time to get home in time. I remember getting to the roundabout at the end of the road where the church was, and there was a traffic jam. And I was unable to keep my promise. You see, but with God, (laughs) there is no person, there's no deity, there's no event, there's no circumstances over which God does not have power. Remember these words? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the source of all power. He is the source and sustainer of all life. He called everything into being. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. 
Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And boy, from a human perspective, God had to do some hard things to keep his promise. Listen to the power of God. In order to keep his promises, God had to have Cyrus on the throne of Persia. Now, it's one thing to stand at a certain time in history and predict that maybe in the future a ruler might come and make a certain policy or law. It's quite another to name that ruler by name and to state the specific law they will pass and specifically when he would say it. And through Isaiah, God mentioned Cyrus by name 150 years before he is born. Oh, and God also had to ensure that the Persians were ruling at that exact time in history, which was a problem because the Babylonians were the world power at that time. And it was that night that God caused a hand to appear and right on the walls of the Babylonian palace. That very night, power changed hands. Now, we all know it's impossible to get anyone to do your exact bidding all the time. Well, even most of the time. Well, even a little bit of the time. Be it your children, your spouse, your best friend, at various times they will disobey or disagree or disappoint. And these are people who are for you, who know you, who respect you, who love you. Imagine then how much power God has to move the heart of Cyrus to do his exact bidding. Because Isaiah 45, 4 tells us that Cyrus does not know and acknowledge nor respect God. Cyrus was actually an enemy of God, yet God moved his heart. And there's a whole lot more God had to do, but that gives you a taste of the power God exercised to make this promise true. Well, I went to a Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary for four years and in the four years I was there, there were, there were five occasions when the seminary held its breath awaiting the outcome of events. The top occasion by far was when the seminary president was removed from his post. I remember the day I heard the rumors and then the affirmation that he was indeed being fired. It's the American term, made redundant over here. And I remember a bunch of us gathered outside his office and we had to watch as his locks were changed so he could not reenter his old office. And that was a heavy time. The second time was uh, in a large classroom and there was some intense discussion around creation. And a student asked the professor how he thought God created. And you could have heard a pin drop. We dared not breathe as we waited for this hugely respected theologian to give his answer. The third time was when I got up the nerve to ask this girl out. Oh, okay, that wasn't the whole seminary. No one knew I was asking her out, but I was holding my breath. The fourth occasion was on the seminary basketball court. And I put together this basketball team uh, for three years, and that team was by far the worst team in this basketball league. And the whole seminary knew it. And uh, we were in the playoffs after our second season, but don't get too excited. In this Christian league, every team made the playoffs. But because we were the worst team, we had to play the best team. And they were 
they were out of this world. They were undefeated, and we had a chance to beat them. And the game went down to the last seconds and the last shot, and we had the ball, and we got the ball to our best shooter, and he shot, and if he made it, we would win. Well, the fifth time was another classroom. It was an interesting discussion on the power of God, and the professor silenced all debate when he said, it's one thing to exercise power when no one else has a say, when everyone has no choice but to do exactly what you say when you say it. And the professor said, but that's not the kind of power God has. And he went through a couple of other scenarios, and then he clinched it by saying, but imagine when everyone has freedom to do and say whatever they wish. Think of all the different situations that throws up. And to be able to enter that situation and still be in complete control and use every changing episode to suit your ultimate will, that is God's power. And that truth took our breath away. Why did that wow us so much? I think, thinking back, is because I think more than we realize, we worship a God created in our own image. And in our image, we rob God of power. And that becomes evident when humans question God or get angry with God or stop believing in God or refuse to believe in God because of, say, suffering. Because the image of our God would obviously use power to prevent suffering, wouldn't he? Also on the list of evidence is when humans accuse God of abusing his power in the Old Testament. Humans say that God is vengeful and hateful in the Old, but softens and becomes loving with the arrival of Jesus in the New. But that's not true of God. Yet many persist in describing God in that way. Most of you know I was in Texas last month. I was witnessing to my parents. They are faithful churchgoers. My father is even a church leader. But both of my parents leveled that Old Testament vengeful God complaint on us. I arrived back in the UK and I was doing an outreach in Outerree St. Mary, and there was a lady who leveled that same complaint against God. Vengeful in the Old Testament, softens in the New. Last week, doing my door-by-door evangelism, I heard the same thing. You see, but the truth is, God says in Malachi 3.6, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. Now turn to Jeremiah 31.3. Jeremiah 31.3, just a few pages back. Jeremiah 31.3. This is great. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That means that's a love from eternity past to eternity future. And it goes on to say, I have drawn you with loving kindness. And folks, this is the Old Testament. Dare you accuse God of being wrong? Dare you accuse God of being a liar? God is gracious. That's our third point. He is Gracious, And that is plain throughout the Old Testament. I put that before you. Now look again at Jeremiah 29.10. And I'm going to read it again from the NIV. Where it says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise. 
<laughs> See, it was according to grace that Israel would be freed from captivity in Babylon. It was for God's glory. It was for his renown. Uh, the Israelites did not earn this promise. They were faithless, even in captivity. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 29. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 29. Just so you see, Israel, even in captivity, even being punished in hopes that they would turn to God, were still disobeying and rejecting God. Jeremiah 3, 29. Now there were a few Jews left in Jerusalem, and God is addressing them in the first part of 329. When he says, for they, those still in Jerusalem, have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, words that I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets. And then he addresses the thousands and thousands of Jews in Babylon. And he says, and you exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord. We'll turn back to Jeremiah chapter 29. And read to yourself Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29, 11. You see that? You see, if the Old Testament God was vengeful, that verse would read, I have plans to condemn you. Now read verses 12 through 14 to yourself. You see what you're reading? God is initiating friendship relationship, love. He will bring the Israelites from captivity. Those are actions of grace because the Israelites did not deserve such treatment. Read verses 4 through 7 now, Jeremiah 29. Verses 4 through 7. Listen to these words. To your, read those to yourself. words such care and note particularly verse 7 because there God is given love and guidance so that not only the Israelites would prosper but the Babylonians who are not worshiping God who are worshiping false gods he wants them to prosper also this is such an immense love from God it says in verse 7 also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers you too will prosper And finally, let me read to you from Jeremiah 18, because there we, ha we have an excellent summation of God's Old Testament character. In Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8, he says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, listen to this, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. God this Old Testament God is a gracious God. And God proves that what he said here in Jeremiah 18 is true. Remember when the entire city of Nineveh repented and God spared them judgment? And then in Jeremiah 18, 9 and 10, he says, And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, 
And if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. God's intentions are for good, but it is because of sinful and unrepentant humans. They're at fault for these repeated destructions that we read about in the Old Testament. No, no, no. The God of the Old Testament, he is willing to bless. He's ready to love. He is willing to forgive any who repent. So there we go. God is gracious. He keeps every single promise. And no God, no being, no force can overcome God's great power. Amen.